The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. I've been giving a series of talks on integrating practice into daily life and uh, obviously I think when we think about it it's obvious but it's easy to get trapped into this thought that our practice is what we do when we meditate and uh, so whatever we can do to start including our whole life as a training ground and I've been talking about different ways of doing that. About a month ago I talked about just slowing down a little bit or softening the heart a little bit in various activities of our life, how it really changes how we are. We learn a lot more if we just slow down a little bit or soften up a little bit while we're doing whatever we do. And I mentioned another simple technique, just remembering the possibility of freedom. Or what, you can just substitute whatever word you aspire to and just to have the reflection ongoing throughout the day. Well, what would freedom look like here and now? Or what would happiness look like here and now? Or ease? Or love or compassion look like here and now? Just as a technique. And, you know, we need to find particular strategies that we like because we don't do things we don't like. And uh, then we commit to it, and then all of a sudden we realize that you don't really like it after all. But we've already made a commitment. So the next, the third strategy I suggested, I'm going to continue talking about this tonight, is working with sila. Sila is the Pali word for ethical conduct. So learning how to live harmoniously. And there's a set of rules that we can use. And the whole point of sila isn't to become a good Buddhist or a good boy or girl or a good man or woman or something in between. The idea of sila is to help illuminate our life so that we can have insight, we can deepen our understanding instead of going through life an automatic pilot. And uh, I mentioned for the last couple weeks this strategy of, in terms of sila, learning to creatively use restraint. And when you hear the five precepts, the five training precepts given for lay people in the Buddhist tradition, you'll see that they're, they're written in a way that talks a lot about restraint. So the first one is, I undertake the training to refrain from harming and killing living beings. So this is a training. If we undertake that training not to harm living beings, we'll start learning a lot because we'll notice all kinds of things that might suggest to us that this is going to harm somebody. This is going to kill somebody. And the second one is I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which isn't given to me. So you can imagine what a wonderful reflection that would be to live with all day long. Like what does that mean given to me? <laughs> Because we take up all kinds of space, you know, with our friends. Now, are they really offering us this space, or are we demanding it from them? So there's all kinds of ways to think of 
not stealing, not taking what isn't freely offered. There's even a section in the discourses of the Buddha or the suttas which don't always include the Buddha. This one doesn't include the Buddha, but there was somebody, a monk, I believe, practicing around the time of the Buddha, and uh, he leaned over. He was in seclusion in the forest, and he sniffed a beautiful flower. And just then, a deva, one of the celestial beings, as this story goes, scolded him, called him a stealer of scents. <laughs> what are you doing stealing a scent? He goes, what do you mean stealing a scent? You sh there are many people you should be criticizing, but me just sniffing a flower doesn't seem to be the appropriate place to be criticizing. And uh, Deva, who had some real wisdom, explained to this monk, it was his attitude, this sort of feeding off of experience. And this is really what the second precept is about. I mean, there's one thing when we're hungry to take care of the need of the body to have good nourishment. And there's another it's another completely different experience to be eating as entertainment where we're trying to get more than just uh, nutrition from our food but we're trying to distract ourselves or entertain ourselves or somehow you know get something from the experience of eating or from whatever you could substitute anything there a little later tonight I hope to talk more about sexuality which is the third precept this attempt to get something from our sexual relations or just uh, our interactions in general with other people. So that brings us to the third precept. I undertake the training. And so here it depends if you're on retreat or practicing as a monk or a nun. So you could undertake the training to refrain from any sexual activity. Does it mean we're not a sexual being? It just means we're not acting out our sexuality when we undertake this form of the precept. Or I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, not to harm with my sexual energy. And then the fourth is I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. And then the fifth is I undertake the training to refrain from the use or misuse of intoxicants. And in a sense, this isn't a true moral precept because there's nothing inherently harming about having a glass of wine, but it's what it leads to, tends to lead to. So it's really a protection that if we misuse drugs or alcohol, it's more easy for us to act out, have an energy that's not so skillful. And I want to mention three other precepts that we don't hear too much about are often used when people go on retreat. Like if you wanted to go stay at a monastery for a while, they, they might, they'd likely, if it was a Theravada monastery, ask you to follow all eight precepts. So there are three additional precepts. And again, these precepts aren't about things that are inherently harmful, but they're really more training to illuminate the force of greed in the mind and the force of aversion in the mind. So the next precept is to undertake the training to refrain from eating at the wrong times. And so at a monastery, it would probably mean not eating after midday. So you have your main meal before noon, and then you can have a few things afternoon, depending on the particular uh, lineage. But you can sometimes have uh, tea, and sometimes you can't. In Burma, they consider tea and edible, so you can't have it even if you're just having a cup of tea. 
Um, but in, it's a kind of strange. In some traditions, you can have dark chocolate because dark chocolate I, evidently didn't exist at the time of the Buddha, so it didn't get on the list. <laughs> I'm not sure how they justify it, but it's only in a certain few lineages. So, the ones I like to practice in. <laughs> some of you have met Ajahn Chanako and Venerable Jyoti Palo, who have visited here a number of times, and they're in that. Thai forest tradition that allows for dark chocolate <laughs> after midday. But mostly you're not eating after midday. But for us, for people just interested in, in having our habit energy illuminated, this sixth precept is really about developing eating in order to take care of needs as opposed to wants. And this is just in general good reflection. What's the difference between a want and a need? And just to understand, again, it's not about right or wrong. It's not about impressing other people. It's just wanting ourselves to better understand, am I living a life that's driven by wants, which are basically habit energy? Or is it just I'm doing my best to get what I need to be a healthy, happy human being? And just to understand the difference. This has a lot to do with the second precept of not taking what isn't given in the deeper aspects of that second precept. And then the seventh training that you could undertake, you can begin to reflect on, is I undertake the training to refrain from dancing, singing, music, going to shows, wearing garlands, and beautifying myself with perfumes and cosmetics. So that's sort of an interesting training. And again, I think what's important for us, if you go to a monastery, then you just follow it literally. Um, but it, for us, because it's just a suggestion to, to help illuminate, you could just take on any aspect of that for any period of time. Like one night to take on the training not to seek out entertainments tonight. What an illumination that would be. We would see so much, I would see so much about my need for entertainment. I need, I think, it's really a want. I want to know what's going on in the world. Even though I checked, you know, the news on the internet two hours ago, I want to know if anything else has happened. <laughs> so I'll check again. Or, you know, how many times do we actually have to check our email in one day? <laughs> or phone messages, or so many other things. And so this is then this for us, then we can just put in the category of entertainment. This isn't taking care of my basic sort of survival. This is something else. This is about distraction, about looking for some diversion. Like, I don't like my life, so I'm going to go do something to stir it up or distract myself. And the other part of number seven, which I think is very interesting, dancing, singing, music, going to shows, wearing garlands, beautifying ourselves, that it isn't ex explicit, but I think it probably would fall here. There are certain things that we can do to whip up emotional energy. Like, for example, and I, I generally like going to movies, although I'm very a lot more careful these days than I used to be about what movies I see. But uh, one of the reasons I'm more careful is um, as uh, one of the art forms in our culture that gets really 
a lot of intelligent people, the movies are very good at generating strong emotions. They know how to tug, to pluck all of our emotional strings. And we're pretty, uh, we kind of like it because we feel more real watching somebody else's life than living our own. And so we go and we have our, all of our emotional strings plucked and that reminds us that we're alive. And then, of course, we go back to our life and it doesn't feel so real. <laughs> have you noticed that? Coming back after the movie, either you want to keep the charge going by talking about it or by going right to the next distraction, or you might feel a little let down and even a little aversive. I noticed that. Actually, my wife noticed that and pointed it out for me. <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a very clear habit of kind of being a little bit aversive after movies, uh, coming back into my life, just this ordinary guy with this ordinary life. And um, so the second, the seventh rather um, training is really about taking some time where <clears throat> we're on purpose not strumming the emotional strings. Now, of course, things will happen in our life and those strings will get plucked. You know, we'll lose a friend or um, something beautiful will happen or something tragic will happen. But we're not doing it on purpose. Those things are just arising naturally through the course of our life. We're not on purpose generating strong emotional energy. But we're learning to relate and actually appreciate the more subtle emotional energy that we have, like calmness. You know, next to seeing Indiana Jones, I hear they're making another one, due out sometime, probably in the summer. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm getting paid to tell you guys that. Um, but we can we can learn that uh, ordinary emotions can be just as rich and just as satisfying. But but it's like anything, you know. If we're only eating uh, Fritos and intense blockbuster movies, consuming blockbuster movies, well then. Normal food, you know, like uh, a cucumber, <laughs> doesn't stand out. And normal events like watching the squirrels in the backyard or, you know, talking to our neighbor about the spring and whether it's coming or not, those, those experiences seem so unimportant. Like, I don't even have to be there for them, so we, so we won't be there. And then the eighth training, you could probably guess, I undertake the training to refrain from lying on a high or a luxurious bed or sitting on a high or luxurious chair. So you see where this is going. It's like one of our deep, deep uh, places for distraction, which is just to go unconscious, right? That's what we really like. One of the most satisfying sleeps is after sitting for a long time, like a couple hours. You've been doing some sitting, and then you lie down, and you go to sleep for a few minutes. And we can get quite intoxicated. You know, people, I think, work out more than anything else so they can have that nice experience of sleeping that night. 
you know, have a good sleep. Because what do we get when we go into deep sleep? Besides all the, yeah, peace. But besides all the entertainment we get when we're in dream, the dream state, what do we get when we're in deep sleep? We put down the burden of self. Of course, we're not conscious of it. But there's sort of a vague recollection, a vague memory when we finally get up, when we've had some deep sleep, of having rested. It's like all of the problems that we believe that we have, all the inadequacies, all the mistakes we've made, all the things we dream about, we feel like we'd be happier if we had, all of that disappears, I'm assuming, in deep sleep. Because all of that sense of self and all the things that are part of that sense of self, part of Mark, require ongoing effort to be maintained. We have to keep regenerating all my worries, all my fears, all my desires, all the things I think I'm good at, all the things I think I'm bad at, all the problems. We have to keep working at that to keep that experience of being, in my case, Mark, going. So when the whole system shuts down for however long that is, then psychologically that weight is not alive. So we tend to, we tend to uh, gravitate towards going unconscious. This is why we like to be comfortable. Because when we're comfortable, we can doze out. You know, and when we're uncomfortable, it's not so easy. But you can. <laughs> but it's not so easy. So this is another place to play with in terms of that creative use of restraint. Like how much sleep do you need as opposed to how much sleep you want? Or how comfortable does your chair have to be to, to help you do what you need to do? I mean, it's amazing these days if you look at some cars, like how much thought has gone into the comfort in the cars and just our clothes and so many things that we're seeking comfort. So just laying out these eight precepts, and before we end tonight, I'll pass out uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk, quite famous now, living in the West for a number of decades. And these are just his comments about each of the first five precepts these five precepts for lay people. And uh, you can take that copy home with you tonight just to give you a sense how to work with sila and to remember that these are trainings used to illuminate our habit energy that we're not clearly seeing yet. And you don't need to feel burdened like I have to do all five and I have to do them just like Thich Nhat Hanh suggests. Better just to take one or two that you feel inspired to dig into a few places and just see what you can learn about that part of your conditioning, that part of your life. Because you might realize that you can be a lot more skillful and even when you say something like being skillful or being more wholesome, it feels like a burden. But the whole point of sila is to liberate us. It's a freedom. When we're more skillful, we feel more free. 
we feel more safe in the world, and of course other people feel more safe when we're living skillfully. So, as I mentioned last week, working with sila is the most, according to the Buddha, and this has been my sense too in my own practice, it is the most direct path to happiness. And then the opposite would be screwing this up, screwing up this part of our life is the most direct path to suffering. I mean, we know this. How much suffering, just in misspeaking, you know, like who is the person, the advisor to Barack Obama who called Hillary Clinton a monster. I, I mean, I don't know this person at all. I've never seen her interviewed. But you can at least imagine that she's quite regretful of that comment slipping up, like in the way that it did. And, I mean, who knows? Things could be planned. <laughs> Nothing would surprise me. But assuming that it was just a kind of, she, she kind of lost control of what she was saying and just misspoke in that moment, she probably feels quite badly about it. Not necessarily for Hillary, but maybe <laughs> for losing her advisory post. <laughs> who knows? But we probably have, just in this room, hundreds of examples of things we said or did that we really regret, that are painful now for us. So I want to take the last part of the evening to look specifically at this area of um, sexuality and like how we, ordinary folks that we are, how we could illuminate our lives, see parts of our conditioning that we're not seeing clearly by somehow working with this precept. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Like what does that mean? What might that mean for us? There's a story that I like a lot um, that Ajahn Sumedho tells. He's probably the most senior Western Buddhist monk these days, and uh, he teaches mostly in England, but comes to the States every once in a while. And when he was practicing in Thailand under a famous Thai monk, Ajahn Chah, um, he was sort of this really tall American at this monastery, and at that time in the 60s there weren't too many Westerners practicing in Buddhist monasteries. And uh, so he was sort of a big deal, and he had been there for a few years now. And Ajahn Chah was a really big deal in that country. People from all over would come to see him. And one day, a bunch of nursing students showed up. These young women training to be nurses showed up. And they um, you know, sit down in front of Ajahn Chah, this well-known Thai monk. He gave him a, a Dharma talk. And, but before uh, his talk, he asked Ajahn Sumedho to come join him and sit next to him. So here's Ajahn Sumedho, a younger man. Uh, he was probably in his 30s at the time, and uh, celibate because he's a Buddhist monk, and all these young Thai women in front of him. And, and then after the talk and some in question and answers, the nursing students had to leave, and Ajahn Chah turns to his monk and says, well, what do you think? <laughs> And you can imagine, you know, all kinds of responses that maybe you should have, like, what do you mean, what do I think, you know? <laughs> breathing in, breathing out, you know, maybe that's what his teacher wanted him to say, right? It's like, I didn't notice anything, 
And, uh, but Ajit Tomato, you know, having practiced for a while, understood the practice is about being truthful. It's not about pretending to be uh, an asexual being when you're not an asexual being. So he says, he said to his teacher, I like, but I do not want. And uh, his teacher loved that answer. <laughs> so evidently, Ajahn Chah tell everybody who we met the next few days kind of what Ajahn Sumedho said. <laughs> because it's a sign of real wisdom to, to be able to say, honestly, to feel, to be mindful of the liking. When there's a beautiful or pleasant object in front of us, we're conditioned to like. And so we shouldn't repress that. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We should just understand it for what it is. Liking is like this. And then not wanting is understanding that I've made a choice. He had been married before when he lived in California, Arjun Semeno. So uh, he became a monk pretty late in life. I think he was 32 or something like that when he finally ordained. So obviously he, he had lived he, and he understood what it meant to be a, a sexual, to, to have a sexual relationship. And he made a choice to be a celibate monk. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but it just means as long as I'm choosing to be this, this is what I want. I want to practice celibacy. I don't want to practice uh, being acting out my sexual energy, having relationships. <clears throat> Now, probably for you and me, with the exception of going on retreats, uh, a lot of us, most of us, aren't practicing any sort of formal celibacy. But that doesn't mean we're not celibate at times. So when we're celibate, we might just take that opportunity to really practice it consciously, to be a conscious celibate. It doesn't mean that when we meet Mr. and Mrs. Wonderful, we can't you know, have a different vow. My wife's now in uh, New Jersey visiting her mom, so this is a week of celibacy for me. And even if you have a, a partner, an intimate partner that you're sexual with, there are a lot of other beings that you might like. Probably there are other beings that we like. So even, even if we have a sexual partner, we're practicing celibacy with everybody else, hopefully. Or if you're not, you can reflect on whether that may be a training you'd like to undertake. Undertaking the training not to cultivate sexual feelings for other beings other than my sexual partner. Now that's a very interesting training. So there are many ways to work with this. Because like that example of uh, the monk who was sniffing the, the beautiful flower, when we're looking at somebody or just using our imagination, imagining somebody and cultivating sexual uh, fantasies, what is that? What exactly is going on? Have you ever looked at your heart when you're doing that? Because this is a really good thing to look at. Because, because it's, at least for me, and I think most human beings, but certainly the guys, seem to have this energy. I'm not so sure about women, but that doesn't mean they don't. So I, I'm just, I tend to know men more than I do women about in this area. <laughs> I just want to be careful. 
But anyway, there's a tendency to fantasize. And uh, this is especially true when the more you practice meditation, the more concentrated your mind gets. And it's like your imagination becomes more powerful. You can imagine things more quickly, more vividly, because the mind just has that capacity to be fully there, whatever the experience is. So when I'm sitting on retreat or just in a daily sit, and I start worrying about my problems, I really worry about my problems. (laughs) My mind gets really concentrated. Sometimes after I've been lost in distraction, like worrying about something, and then I come out, I'll notice how concentrated my mind is. Of course, it's concentrated, but it's created a lot of tension, too, because the part of what the mind concentrated on was the aversion or was the craving, you know, wanting to figure this out or wanting to get rid of this problem. So we can get concentrated with sexual fantasies or any sort of thought, any kind of uh, problem in our life, but the side effect is very real and we can see it. And not only the side effect in that moment, like the tension that's been created in the body and mind, but it also digs a groove. It sets in motion something that then, if certain situations arise, it can be very hard not to act out something that we, in a sense, know better than to do. But because of all what's come before, there's a real force, a real momentum in the mind. It doesn't take much imagining, especially with the news of Eliot Spitzer, uh, to know the kind of destruction that happens around sexual misconduct. How many lives, how many families have been destroyed, how much suffering there is. and how deep those scars are. I would imagine most of us have scars due to an intimate relationship. Even if the problem wasn't specifically about sexuality, the intimacy in that relationship probably had a lot to do with the fact that we were sexual uh, partners. So then everything uh, has a real charge to it. The whole relationship has a real charge to it because of that intimacy. So here's what Thich Nhat Hanh says. This will be in that sheet that I pass out. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility in learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual relations without love and a long-term commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. So again, that's just his particular suggestion, and you might get a few ways to begin to reflect on this part of your life. As I've been talking the last few weeks about the precepts, about these particular five trainings, 
uh, it's really useful to remember that there are three ways to work with them. Remember, I talked about the creative use of restraint. So in all aspects of our life, it's really useful to have this one tool to begin to find different ways to play with restraint, whether it's in this area of sexual uh, misconduct or just sexuality in general. Like, what would be a useful <coughs> restraint that would make sense in your life that would help you learn about how your mind, how your heart's conditioned, and how that conditioning might be not so skillful or quite skillful? So how might you engage that? But also there's another way, like I mentioned last week about practicing contentment, being content with what we have. Of course, this could also work in the area of sexuality. It's like if we do have a sexual partner, or partners even, I mean, I, I can conceive of ways where somebody could have more than one partner and it would be healthy, not harming others. But can we practice being content with our sexual partner? And how does that look? How do we practice contentment with our sexual relationship or relationships? How do we practice that? What does that look like? And then the third way that we can practice these trainings is <clears throat> to imagine the uh, this particular area of our life, like our sexuality. What does that look like? How is that expressed if this heart is free of greed, hatred, and delusion? So the Buddha describes the, the sort of um, how ignorance expresses itself in a human heart in terms of not seeing things clearly, acting out of aversion or hatred or anger, and acting out uh, attachment. So what does sexuality in this in this life, what would that look like in a moment at least, or in moments when my heart isn't under the influence of greed, isn't under the influence of aversion or delusion? What would that look like? We might even have a memory of a particular situation. It's, it's not so easy with sexuality because it, it generally brings out some of our more primitive conditioning that includes greed and aversion and delusion. But maybe We've had healthy relationships, and some moments in that healthy relationship, that relatively healthy relationship, there were moments when we were able to be a sexual being without greed, hatred, and delusion present in that moment. And then we can use that. We can use that memory as a, oh, oh so that's, that's also a practice to to go right there to the heart that's free of self-centered greed, anger, and delusion, free of that, and then we just allow our sexual nature to manifest. So that's also that's of course the most difficult. But we want to do we want to practice on all three levels. We want to skillfully, creatively work with restraint in a way that makes sense. We want to have some ideal like contentment, or as uh, some of you know, Stephen Levine, he's a well-known teacher, um, doesn't teach so much anymore because of health reasons, um, 
a Buddhist teacher, but also did a lot of work with uh, people dying over the decades. And um, he had, he wrote a book about with his wife um, about uh, relationships. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Does anybody remember mystical relationships? Does anybody remember it? Mm. Anyway. In that book, he has this, this training, this way of practicing, where he talked about uh, whenever he'd have any sort of sexual fantasy, <clears throat> he would consciously, intentionally put his wife in that role. He would just place his partner in that role. And so this could be a particular training that we can do to sort of direct our sexual energy towards our partner. And it's both, this has both the flavor of restraint, but I think if it's really going to work, it really has to have this, um, like, feeling the, whatever affection and intimacy and love is in the relationship, then sort of using that, highlighting that, and letting the, the sexual energy be an expression of that deep friendship or that deep affection or that deep caring. So it's it's being, uh, the sexual energy is being fused, intentionally fused with uh, whatever that goodness we have in our, our partner, with our partner. The reason I think the Buddha put this precept in and that he had his monks and nuns train in celibacy is because this is such a a strong energy. I mean, obviously, we all, I think probably we all know that, or it's true for all of us. Maybe it's not true for everybody, but it certainly seems to be true for everybody or almost everybody. One of his discourses, the Buddha said, I don't know of even one other form that stays in a man's mind and consumes it like the form of a woman. One other sound, smell, taste, touch that stays in a man's mind and consumes it like the touch of a woman. The touch of a woman stays in a man's mind and consumes it. I don't know of even one other form that stays in a woman's mind and consumes it like the form of a man. One other sound, smell, taste, touch that stays in a woman's mind and consumes it like the touch of a man. The touch of the man stays in a woman's mind and consumes it. And of course we could make that a little bit more inclusive and just say that we as sexual beings are attracted to others. And whatever it is that we're conditioned to be attracted to, that sticks in our mind. And it's not about being male or female, I don't think. I think what it's about is this life energy that we can feel is very much tied to sexual energy. I mean, that's been my experience in my practice. It's interesting, in Buddhism, joy is often uh, very closely aligned with energy, like having a lot of energy, like... uh, the more gross states of joy are called rapture, when we feel energy moving through the body. 
And so when the mind gets concentrated, it doesn't matter what we do. We can be knitting and getting concentrated, and we'll feel little goosebumps, you know, or athletics, or whatever you might do where you do it fully, wholly, your mind becomes absorbed in the activity, we'll start to feel that rush of energy. And the more you are mindful of that energy, the more you'll see the relationship between what we call sexual energy and, and just the feeling of being very alive. It's just that our mind's condition to become very concentrated around the sexual activity or the thoughts of sexual activity. So we feel very alive. I remember when I was younger and having to drive long distances, I, I used to do a lot of backpacking and I'd have to drive to the mountains and I lived out on the west coast. And I was always afraid I was going to fall asleep driving by myself. So I noticed if I have a sexual fantasy, I all of a sudden, no matter how tired I was a moment ago, I felt really alive all of a sudden. And uh, so you can just notice this, and it will give you a sense of why this is so intoxicating for us, why it does stick in our minds, because we feel so alive. And more than anything, more than sex, what we want, fundamentally, we want energy. That's what we're real junkies for, energy. And the sexuality is just a kind of both a cultural imprint, but even more a biological imprint that uh, can uh, rally this energy, this life force where we feel it. And so there are all kinds of practices that you can do with it. If you feel a lot of sexual energy, you can just work with it, like with mindfulness of all things, like just being mindful. Like, what is this energy that you're feeling? That means we have to, like any time we're being mindful of some emotional, mental state, we have to go through the content, not being confused or diluted by the content, the particular person or the particular activity or the particular memory. We have to go through that right into the energetic experience that we're aware of. And that's what we practice seeing clearly, moment by moment. And then, when the content is gone, you'll see that it's just energy. And actually, you can let that energy move through your body. It doesn't need to be stuck in a particular place, location of your body. You can invite it to fill the whole space of the body. Invite it up to the heart. Invite it right up to the top of the head. You can do whatever you want with that energy. But if we don't practice developing the sensitivity, it will do what we've been conditioned to do. It will kind of feel like it's here or wherever you feel it. It's probably different for different people, and it's probably different at different times. But the idea is we want to let things move so that there are more possibilities for how we express this energy. It doesn't have to be expressed in only one way. This is another way to work with sexual energy. The idea in general in Buddhism is to move away from a kind of exclusivity to an inclusivity. And usually, sexual energy is pretty exclusive. So one of, this, uh, one of the um, 
fruits of this this transformation or this alchemy working with the energy by just paying attention to it, not being afraid of it, not being attached. Attached means in this case that we're putting a story with the energy instead of just letting the energy, the sensation, be what it is. Uh, but one of the fruits is that this uh, energy can be more and more inclusive. It's like Joseph Goldstein once said, you know, the difference between metta, this uh, unconditional kindness, versus uh, sexual desire. I mean, can we imagine having sexual desire for all beings? I mean, it's just a, it's an absurd, absurd idea. I'm assuming it's an absurd idea. It is for me. <laughs> but but what we but we can have loving feelings for all beings. So the question is, what's the connection between sexual desire and loving feelings for all beings? And what is the process? How does that transmutation take place? And it's not that sex is bad. There's nothing wrong. It's just what it is. But because it has so much life energy around it, we give it a lot of importance. I mean, just listen to the popular music. It's clearly a big deal in our lives, in the way we dress, in the way that we present ourselves. So I want to leave it here so we have some time to hear from one another. And we can revisit this topic next week, too, if there's not enough time. But please share any thoughts or experiences, what you've learned in this area of your life, or any questions that you might have about the talk tonight. What comes to mind? Mike. Uh, it's really ironic that in uh, Can you get a little bit louder because we have and, and this impression of the sexual energy, you know, the entertainment center of the body as it respects leads to uh, the expression of violence. And you see that there's a lot of war and, and violence towards people. And it's ironic that in certain religions, particularly what's happening in the Christian and Islamic religion, I've studied those and how you fight to see that there's, you know, violence. Yeah, how to be a fully sexual being, which is just another way of saying how to be human, aware, uh, uh, you know, kind of a conscious human, which includes being a sexual being. Thanks for those thoughts. What else comes to mind? Mona? Oh, all kinds of things really come to mind, but um, um, I think I, I kind of I see a parallel about just lying about many things in life about our feelings, how we often lie because we think that um, it wouldn't be acceptable to have the feeling we have about a certain 
certain things, we lie about it, like just even everyday little things. Um, so I guess acknowledging that energy and, and um, our desire or feelings is just a bigger, it's a part of the whole total, excuse me, acceptance of ourselves and our human nature. Yeah. Well, and it's especially important to have a community so that we could mention to our friend who's practiced, you know, about a, a strong lust, for example, that came up for us, and th the person would be shocked. They would, they would just, of course, because the way we're conditioned, lust will come up, and it's like this. And to be able to have those kind of conversations can take away some of the, the force that Mike was pointing to that can be so destructive, the shame and the repression, that we're kind of, it's like it's wrong to have lust. No. Lust, our minds are conditioned the way that they're conditioned. It's not about right or wrong. It's about honesty and, and what, how we relate to what's arising. That's what's important. Not, we can't do anything about what's arising. <laughs> Sorry. Todd? I think as a general rule in working with Suna, um, I'm trying to ask myself, how does this action benefit all beings? And I guess I'm wondering how that applies to sexuality. I mean, I realize that if it's a true feeling, and you're working in the realm, and you're present, and there's love there, that hopefully it expands from there, from two people or whatever, to all beings. But can you apply that? How does this uh, action benefit all beings to an intimate relationship between two people? Well, I mean, I think it, it may be a neutral act. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the but it depends on, um, it, it just depends on the intentions that are there. And it may be like some deep healing happens, and that deep healing is really necessary for those or one of those two people in, that, in the trust, in the intimacy, in the pleasure. Even pleasure, wholesome pleasure is also really healing, can be really healing. So there's a lot of, there can be for certain people a lot of, um, it's, it's like good work to have a healthy sexual relationship. But it doesn't, it's clearly, obviously, it's not an essential because there are a lot of really healthy, integrated people who are celibate. Um, I, think it, I think it takes a, a kind of a, a very strong community to support a celibate life. And in the Catholic Church, you see one of probably main reason why things have gone so bad is because they don't have a healthy monastic community. They're these, these isolated people trying to practice celibacy. Mm -hmm, Maria. Well, I wanted to address the question of how intimate relationships between more than just themselves. Mm -hmm, but a little bit louder. Oh. Um, I'm thinking about how uh, healthy or benefit more than themselves. Um, I know of uh, some people, friends of mine, who have worked very hard on their relationship for many years. And um, she, the 
Uh, she's someone that I can ask a lot of questions. She, she's very good at giving advice um, and support to people who are going through stuff in relationships or friendships. Um, so, I mean, I'm just trying to think how something can be beneficial beyond just this dyad. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of things come to mind. I mean, if you're if you're modeling a healthy relationship and you have kids, then it's like obviously a good thing for the kids if the parents are healthy and have together in that in that realm. But also, so that it can be a really important, almost community service to um, if you are a person with wisdom about know, uh, about, you know, how to handle your sexuality properly, you can be an amazing resource for your community. Yeah. And even in a deeper way, I mean, in the same direction as you're going, but um, I think in, Fran in French there's an expression, the little death, that refers to the, an orgasm. And... But you don't even, this, this could even be just an affection, you know, just simple touching or just any kind of interaction. We can practice losing ourself in the interaction. And that experience of, of learning how to lose ourself means we're losing the greed, losing the aversion, losing the confusion. It's a moment of enlightenment. Now, that's a real gift to the world. That, you know, when we have moments of enlightenment, that means our greed and anger and delusion is getting uprooted. And we're a completely different person in the world if we do that regularly. So this is an activity, this is uh, an, an intention we can bring to all of our interactions, whether they're physical or not, whether they're sexual or just affection, to kind of practice really being there. So that means instead of trying to get something to feed off of the interaction, it's all generosity. It's all giving. And it, the thing is, we're receiving when we give. It's just that the intention is to give. And this is sort of the, the sort of tumbling forward that can be really beautiful. And I think, hopefully, we've all stumbled upon at different times in our life moments of that unconditional giving and feeling really fed by that moment or those moments. Um, and this is another thing that can come out of an intimate relationship. We need to end it here, but I'll put aside some time next week. We'll just go on to the next uh, precept on wise speech, but we'll revisit this one. Um, so please, if you have thoughts from your practice, bring them next week. And uh, Rick, maybe you could put these on the bench, and we'll let Rick go out first so that anybody who wants to get the sheet can. But let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. <clears throat> And it's always appropriate to bring up some gratitude for this center being here and all of these people who we get to practice with. And especially for these ancient and very practical teachings that have been kept alive by men and women doing their best to practice and then sharing what they've learned to the next generation in some amazing way, ending up at this corner in Minneapolis today. 
so we can be inspired to do our best to cultivate awareness in our lives, to live harmoniously as a way of taking care of all beings. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering, and free from the roots of suffering. So thanks for coming, everyone.